all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. You should always look at it with like a critical eye to see if there are some other things at play. Because for years, things would happen and I would say, oh, that's the Lime. That's the Lime. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number... <laughs> Thanks for the drum roll. <laughs> This is episode number 200. Can't believe we're at 200 already. That's four years of doing podcasts. Yeah, just about, isn't it? It's amazing. Uh-huh. And this week's guest is Heather Peretta. And Heather is very special to Lime Ninja Radio. She was our very first guest. She was also guest number 100. She was also guest number 100. Now she's guest number 200. If we have any luck at all, she'll be guest number 300 as well. Heather's story is amazing. And her ability to think through and fight through her symptoms with Lyme disease and everything that's happened after is really amazing. You're definitely going to want to listen to this episode. And if you haven't listened to her previous podcast interviews with us, please go back. It's number one in 100. You can just go to iTunes or SoundCloud and just scroll back to the very beginning and you'll see them there. All right, Aurora. Why don't you actually, I want to say thank you for being with us here for 200 episodes and all your hard work. This is a volunteer effort that we do. Aurora does not get any big salary. We get a few donations here and there, but basically that covers our ability to put this out in the wild, so to speak, covers our hosting costs and some of the other monthly expenses we have with just producing a podcast. Mm -hmm. So no, there's no big salary here. So Aurora and I do this. To make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. And we love being here. We love being here with you. Yes, we do. We do, indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, in this episode, you're going to learn what an elemental diet is and how it can help you. How attributing every symptom to Lyme disease can distract from other underlying issues. And what mast cell activation disorder is. Thanks, Aurora, and be sure to listen to the end of this podcast for the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week we've had listeners from Cyprus to South Korea and from Ireland to Israel. And a big thank you to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. Aurora and I really, really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. This week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Houston, Texas. Number 9, Brisbane, Australia. Number 8, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Number 7, Monson, Massachusetts. Number 6, Duncan, Canada. Number five, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Number four, Calgary, Canada. Number three, Perry Point, Maryland. Number two, Arlington, Virginia. And number one, Sydney, Canada. Big international list this week. Yes. Do you know your Lime score? If not, do yourself a favor and head on over to Lime Ninja Radio to check that out. It's free. 
Yep, just head on over to our website and you'll see a link to take the Lyme Ninja, Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. And we've just put on a little feature now that if you sign up at the end of it, you'll get reminded in 30 days to take it again. The power of the Symptom Tracker is taking it once a month so you can judge your progress. Also, it's a great way to see if a new protocol is working or not. So there's so many ups and downs and twists and turns in tracking your symptoms that if you do it every week or every day, you're just going to get lost in a lot of noise. So once a month is just about perfect to track that stuff. Okay. I just did another commercial and you're going to hear, <laughs> you're going to, you already heard one. So anyway, it's free. So I hope you don't mind too much. All right, Aurora. <laughs> this is our 200th episode. We seem to be rambling a bit. We've we've earned the right, perhaps. Well, maybe we're resting on our laurels. A oh, we bit. better not rest. <laughs> we better not rest on laurels. So, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about Heather Peretta. Heather Peretta is an interpretive naturalist with a bachelor of science degree in environmental and forest biology from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She also holds a master's degree in information design and technology from SUNY IT. Heather is a New York State certified biology teacher and is passionate about building a community where people keenly observe their surroundings and understand how we are all connected to nature. Thanks, Aurora. And here is interview number 200 with Heather Peretta. Hello, Heather. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi, McKay. How are you? I am so excited to speak with you. It seems every time we update, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> there's never a dull moment uh, on my side of things here. <laughs> you know, and it's actually, I think we'll hold this off. You were the first guest I ever had. You were mm-hmm. also the hundredth guest and we're approaching the 200th interview, so I think we'll hold you over for a few interviews and get you at it number 200. Just, oh, cool. That just sounds to, like a good plan. Yeah, just to keep things uh, symmetrical. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the nice things in touching base with you is updates on your Lyme journey and your health journey. I'm going to because we've been talking kind of in between quite a bit. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you even question, did I have Lyme disease at this point? Yeah, I well, I do. And I think that I probably did. I think that I was probably bit. I mean, my lifestyle is such that it wouldn't surprise me. I've always been outside. And I tested positive you know, with the CDC requirements, I'm just sort of a regular Western blot test that my doctor ran as a, well, let's check this out. Um, when I was very sick about six years ago. And so I probably did have a Lyme infection. I'm just, I don't, at this point, I just don't think that it plays an acute kind of role in what's going on. Well, why don't you fill us in with what is going on? I think the last time we talked, I was feeling pretty good, and that's always great. <laughs> I like it when I have those upswings, but it's really been a an up and down kind of um, roller coaster ride for the last six years. And about a year ago in June, I started having some more severe digestive problems. So my whole life, I've had digestive issues, and then every time, since the Lyme diagnosis, every time I would kind of hit up against something, it was like, okay, well, you know, it's probably a good idea at first to eliminate gluten. And then I realized that I still wasn't feeling very good, so I eliminated more grains. And I was pretty dedicated paleo for quite a long time. And then I still wasn't feeling that great having all kinds of digestive symptoms. So maybe we'll go to an autoimmune version of that. So cut out the nightshade and the nuts, things that are sort of more aggravating to your digestive system. Then, you know, go along for a ways, you're okay. And then, gee, that's not working anymore. Okay, low FODMAP. So you cut out that category of food. So over time, I just kept getting sort of more and more sensitive to the things that I was eating and always eliminating things and never able to put them back in. So I had whittled my way down to a pretty strict, 
autoimmune, so no dairy uh, version of a keto diet. And that was working for me for about a year. And then last June, I started reacting to my last safe foods. And at that point, that was beef, coconut milk, and cooked romaine lettuce. And not all together, because that doesn't sound appetizing at all. So let's pause there for a second. So the only thing you were eating was beef, cooked romaine lettuce, and coconut milk. Is that correct? That's correct. Those are my foods, and I ate them every day. Um, I did intermittent fasting, so I really just ate some time in the afternoon and then had maybe a second meal a little bit later, and that was pretty much it. But then I started having bloating and abdominal pain, um, it's more issues with diarrhea and constipation with those foods. So I did a bunch of research and kind of decided that I probably had um, a bacterial overgrowth in my small intestine called SIBO, which a lot of people deal with. And I called the doctor and she said, well, you can go for a GI consultation or we can just treat you for SIBO, but the treatment for SIBO means antibiotics. And at that point, um, because of my Lyme diagnosis and because I took antibiotics for six months and then again for another month later on, the word antibiotic is like, no way, I'm not going there. <laughs> so I said, no, let me see if I can just work this out myself. Um, so I did a bunch of research about elemental diet and I did an elemental diet that wait, I wait, of wait, my wait, own wait, wait, wait. What, What's an elemental diet? So elemental diet is a way that they treat SIBO. And the idea is that you starve off anything that is overgrowing in your small intestine. So you don't eat any food that would get down into the small intestine and be able to be fermented at that point. So you, if you were going to take in sugar, um, which I didn't at that point, you would you would take in dextrose because dextrose is the readily available form of glucose. So our cells can use that directly, no digestion required. Um, you take in straight amino acids, which you can buy um, amino acid powder from a place called Jomar Labs, and that's out in California. And that stuff tastes pretty awful, but um, I came up with a way that I could get it down every day. And I drank shots of MCT oil. So basically, I didn't eat very much, but got in the required nutrients. Because um, I also took some vitamins for micronutrient reasons um, during that time. And I did that for 21 days, and I felt a lot better digestive-wise. It was a really good reset for me. But the problem was that I wasn't able to go back to eating food after that. So I still wasn't tolerating any vegetables or fruits and was sort of sporadically tolerating protein, animal protein. Beef was the best. Pork was not at all tolerated, and chicken kind of, depending on what where it came from. So I kind of settled into a routine where I would fast most of the week. I would eat some food on the weekend, deal with the bloating and discomfort from eating. And then I go right back into my fast again, because more than a couple of days of eating at a time was like torturous. Yeah, let's pause it for a second because you say gas and bloating, but we're not talking about like a little gas and a little, oh, I feel full. No. No, we're talking. No. It's extreme. So I go from looking like a normal person to looking like I'm about six months pregnant in the course of five-ish minutes. And then, um, you know, I also had a lot of extreme nausea. So I would eat something and then about a half an hour later, first start feeling tired. And then the nausea would sort of come on after that. And I just keep getting more and more nauseous until I was pretty sure that I was going to vomit. I'd have, you know, hot flashes and chills, shakes. I would have to go in. I'd have terrible diarrhea. And then um, once all of that was done, I'd sort of start to come back around. The nausea would get better. 
usually that would happen to me in the middle of the night, depending on what I ate for dinner. But it, the digestive symptoms were just, I would say, unbearable. And the bloating wasn't just like abdominal bloating. I would also have a lot of fluid retention and edema. Um, my legs swelled. Well, they still swell up, but they would swell up to like a ridiculous size when I was eating. So there was a lot of back and forth. And I, I sort of experimented with different patterns of fasting and eating to try to figure out if there was an in-between um, in case the symptoms, some of the symptoms that I was experiencing had to do with starting to eat again. And it didn't really seem to make any difference what I did. I had severe digestive symptoms that in some cases were really debilitating. Like, the, you know, your family wants to go do something in the afternoon and I have to like go and be in the bathroom for an hour and at some point fall asleep in there <laughs> because I'm feeling so terrible. How stressful was all that? <laughs> it was very, it, I, it was very stressful and it's still, because things continue to evolve. So it still is very stressful. I'm just, I'm very fortunate because my family, you know, I have a, a very supportive husband we have three little kids. Our oldest is nine and our twins are seven and they're kind of getting used to this. Well, sometimes mommy is not well, which is really unfortunate, but their kids are really adaptable. So they just kind of roll with whatever's going on. And I'm an only child. My parents live nearby. And so they're really invested in trying to do everything that they can to help me health wise and help out, you know, with the kids. So we all kind of, we work as a unit. You're fortunate. Yeah, I'm extremely in some fortunate ways. because, yeah, <laughs> in some ways I'm extremely fortunate. Like if you had to be dealt the hand that I have, doing it alone, I think would be so isolating that I don't know how a person gets through that. Now, let's want to rewind a little bit and emphasize a couple things. N number one, you know, you kind of downplayed the restrictiveness of your diet, but that's the most restrictive diet I've ever heard of in my life. I mean, beef, yeah. cooked romaine lettuce, and coconut milk, that's not a lot well, on the menu, right? I have problems no. with some of my patients when I say, well, why don't you cut out pasta for a week? Oh, my God, a week pasta? I'm going to die. Yeah. And here you are, you know, just taking category of food after category of food out and then, even after having some success with this, still finding that they're major problems. So, yeah. since you're a researcher, well, it, what did that what did that lead you into? I want to just say one thing about the restrictive diet before we move on, and that is that it actually got worse. It got more restricted, so that my diet basically consisted of beef and grass fed butter, <laughs> and that it was like that. And periodically eating that, not all the time, it was like that for six months. And that is enough to make a person crazy in itself when you talk about stress, stress, because I have to cook meals for children or at least make something for them, you know, several times a day when they're not in school. And so that in itself puts a huge strain on a person. To know that you're surrounded by food, that, but that you can't eat any of it because if you choose to eat it, you're choosing to feel really sick. And so at that point, when things started to not, like, it seemed like I wasn't going to come back around and start to be able to eat food without figuring something else out. That's when I started to think, okay, well, maybe, maybe there is more to this than just like a simple you have a case of SIBO and that's a result of having, let's say, napalmed your digestive tract um, with antibiotics for six months and, you know, that you never really recovered from that. Maybe there's more to the story. And I, I would say that if there's one thing that I've learned over the last year is that once you get a diagnosis, you shouldn't 
attribute everything that's happening to that diagnosis. You should always look at it with like this critical eye to see if there are some other things at play because for years things would happen and I would say, oh, that's the line, that's the line, that, you know, all of these things. And what I've sort of discovered is that for me, there was probably a Lyme infection and it probably exacerbated or escalated some things that had been running in, in me, like persistently since I was born. Um, things that I just sort of thought that were my quirks. So, you know, one quirk is that uh, my joints are really flexible, but my muscles are really tight. That's something I always said to every person I ever saw because I started seeing a chiropractor when I was 12 for um, back pain. And so that's something that I knew about myself. My joints are really flexible. Um, something else I knew about myself was that when I stand up, I get dizzy. Um, sometimes it really comes fast and I almost pass out. Like I have to either sit back down on the floor or hold on to something. And sometimes it's not quite that dramatic, but I've always known that. And when I was in my late teens, uh, doctor said, well, that's because you have low blood pressure. So it's just, you know, you just sort of make a mental note. Yeah, that's just who I am. And the same goes for being sensitive to chemicals and um, metal and fragrances. I've been sensitive to those things my whole life. And that's just something that I know about me. But it turns out that each one of those things are actual things that make either recovering from a Lyme infection much more difficult or it sort of sets up a stage so that, that if you have any kind of infection that changes, you know, that sort of rides along in your DNA and changes the expression or turns things on, it can, I don't know how to describe it other than completely crumble the whole system. One of our first classes when I started acupuncture was taught by an ER physician, and he also taught medical residents this same course. And his opening lecture was a case presentation of an old man who had fallen down some stairs and came to the ER with a broken arm. And the rest of the story is they x-rayed his arm, set the arm casted it, put him in a sling, sent him home, and he comes back in three days and dies on the way to the hospital. And he, the, the doctor asked, well, tell me what went wrong. So generally what happens is everybody starts thinking complications with the treatment and complications with the broken arm. And then people start Drifting off to, well, maybe he hit his head and had a concussion, you know, part of the fall. And then finally, usually nobody gets to the point. This is what this doctor said. Nobody got to the point. He said, what happened with this man was the reason he fell down the stairs was he had a stroke. Right. Yeah. And we get so blinded this way. It's just yeah. human nature. It's just the way we think as human beings. It is so difficult to go back to square one and rethink everything once you know something. You you can't. Yeah. Really. You can't. Yeah. And but that's where I that's where I ended up this um past fall. So uh I started having like crazy allergic type reactions to foods where I couldn't breathe. Um, if I, you know, tried to eat something, um, I was having that digestive thing where, you know, more and more nauseous than the diarrhea along with heart palpitations and all these things. And through some research, I learned that that's really a GI anaphylactic reaction, um, which I didn't know for quite a long time when that was happening to me. And then I started reacting to places. I, was, I would take my kids to gymnastics, and the more I sat there, the more my face would flush. I would get terrible headaches. I would feel really dizzy. 
Um, and so the symptoms really started to come crashing around me. I found that I was having a hard time wearing a lot of my clothing, anything that was really dark color. I wasn't able to put on because I would get these terrible headaches and my face would flush, my heart would raise. And so because of that, I just started thinking, well, you know, maybe there is more to this. I have two cousins um, who had been diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome. And we talk a lot. For years, I just sort of thought, well, that's them and this is me because I have Lyme and I have these other things going on. But I started looking at the um, mast cell activation a lot more critically and thinking about how that could be playing a role in my life. And so that was really when I started going back. I, I just kind of set everything aside and said, all right, what in the world could be happening here? And so that's when I really started digging into um, MK, which is the mass activation. And then through that, it sort of led me down many other pathways of trying to figure out what was going on. And then one day in December, I had this muscle contraction in the left side of my jaw. And I said to my mom, I said, it feels like the muscles in my, in my jaw on that side are trying to break my bones or like it, they would if they could. And so I had that on and off. And that was the point at which my parents were just like, you have to make an appointment to go see some doctor that knows about MCAS because this is getting to be ridiculous. And so that happened that day, and then those contractions didn't come back for a week. And then it happened again. And then a week after that, it happened again, and I've had them every day since. And your jaw? And when I say, well. <laughs> All over. When I, yeah, it, it really, since that day in December, the contractions move, um, they start in that maxillary muscle that's in the left side of my jaw, and then it moves down into my neck. Depending on how much of it is, in, how much of my body is involved, like how long it goes on, sort of, um, it can affect my whole left arm where my hand gets pinned back and I can't move my fingers. It can affect the muscle on the left side of my spine, so my whole body sort of twists around and kind of a, it feels like a, it's trying to wring me out <laughs> like a washcloth. It goes down my leg. It sort of splays my knee out to the side and it tips my foot under. My toes will get uh, flexed back and then I can't, I can't do anything about any of that. Like I can't, it doesn't necessarily hurt. I was going to ask you, um, is that painful or just, they're just contracted? They're contractions. After a while, what happens is it starts to hurt because the muscles fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, it's sort of like going to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> so after a really bad episode, I'm really wiped out for a couple of hours. I just am completely exhausted. About three months ago, I started this. I had my first episode where it occurs sort of like a seizure, except for the fact that I'm fully aware and it's usually triggered by something. And when that happens, I can't speak, I can't control my, any of my body at all. Even the right side doesn't want to do what I want it to do. And so then I kind of end up writhing around on the floor or somewhere, and I just have to wait it out. I just had one of those episodes on Sunday, unfortunately. So in the midst of all of the digestive issues and all the rest of it, now I've got some really sort of weirdo, I would call them, neurological issues happening. And as a result, I decided to really cast an extremely wide net and try to see just about anybody that would take my case so that I could try to figure out what was going on. So let's pause here for a second, and I've asked several doctors to explain what a mast cell is, and you get a pretty technical explanation. But okay. since you're a lay person and a smart person at the same time, what what's a mast cell? So a mast cell is an immune, it's part of your immune system, and these little mast cells 
are in every tissue because their job is to sort of have all these little doors and so that anything that comes into your body or anything that happens to your body, they're the ones that sort of send out the red flag and alert everybody else that something has gone wrong. So they have like a little, they have um, a protein that acts as a lock. And if a virus comes in, it sits there and it unlocks that lock. And then the mast cell sends out chemical mediators, which are um, like messages to all the other cells. Okay, this is what we're dealing with. And so they have receptors on their surface that can be unlocked by virus, bacteria, parasites. If you have physical damage, if there is, they can be activated by heat. They can be activated by really loud sounds. And they can certainly be activated by things that go on internally in your body as well. So like if you're in a stressful situation and you have a lot of, you know, hormones at play there because of the fact that you're stressed, that in itself can activate. And they also on their surface have receptors where they're, so, you know, like if we called one of them Bob, Bob sends out the message and that activates Fred and then Fred is activated you know, he sends out more messages, so it's a cascade effect. So once one mast cell, what we call degranulates, or sends out all of these mediators, then everybody in that area or even throughout the body join the party, and then you can have really severe reactions to things that are extremely benign. Um, When they start to sort of go rogue, (laughs) Um, which is what mast cell activation syndrome is, is when you're, you have the appropriate number of mast cells, but unfortunately they degranulate and send out all of these mediators in response to lots of things that should not be um, an issue. It's very helpful for your body to increase, to have this inflammatory process to deal with acute issues. You know, if you have a cut, of course you want blood supply to, you know, things turn red and get hot. Um, if there's a localized infection, you want your blood supply to be increased to there. You want to drop off white blood cells so that they can do their job. But the thing is, is that when your mast cells sort of misbehave, then you end up with these inflammatory processes running for really no good reason. And that no good reason could be some, like sometimes I react really severely to the smell of someone cutting their grass. So driving down the road is sometimes a problem, um, you know, if I'm riding in a car because my mast cells have decided that grass is a really big no-no. How do you get anything done? You don't. <laughs> And how do you deal? Know. And how do you deal so, with that? Because you're so, you're not a type B sit back and watch TV type person. No, I would say I'm kind of an extreme type A. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> I've always run at this ridiculous breakneck speed, and have felt like if I'm not going at that speed, that there's something wrong with me. Um, like I'm being lazy. Something wrong with me. I don't mean sick, but um, so. Basically, the first thing that has to happen is you have to get this thing under control. Like you've got to, I am not, I have never in my life wanted to take a medication for anything. You know, during the Lyme thing, I was scared, didn't know what was going on. So I did take the antibiotics for six months. But then even though I felt worse than when I started, I stopped because I just didn't, I didn't feel like medication was going to be the answer. And now I'm not sure I could do, I could, I I don't get very much done these days, but I don't think I could even get that little bit done that I do without the medications (laughs) um, that I'm taking. And so I, you know, I did consult with a specialist who diagnosed me with mast cell activation after three rounds of testing. 
and blood and urine testing, I should say. And the way that it works is that there's a protocol out there. You know, first you start with your H1 um, antihistamines, and then you move on to your H2. It's a giant experiment. You try each one for a certain amount of time at a certain dosage, and then you increase the dosage and you increase the frequency. It's, It's sort of like running the ultimate experiment on yourself to figure out what drugs are going to help you to feel somewhat better so that you can at least start to feel like, okay, I can get out of bed again and I can, you know, reliably sort of take care of my kids to the best of my ability. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't extend to being, for me, it doesn't extend to being able to drive a car or grocery shop um, or do really a lot of sort of normal things um, because there's a lot going on that I haven't figured out yet. Are the medications helping? They are. They are. Um, I would say, you know, in the beginning when I mentioned that there were some things that I knew about myself forever. So the MCAS kind of explains my sensitivity to things that I've always experienced. Mm -hmm. And there are the other two things that I knew about myself also have names. (laughs) And so the dizziness um, and low blood pressure, I was diagnosed with positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is called POTS. And POTS is an autonomic nervous system issue where your body doesn't keep your blood pressure um, stabilized very well. So when you change position, the blood starts to pool in your hands and your feet when you're upright. And it has a really hard time um, equalizing your blood pressure. So it sends your heart rate really high in order to kind of bring that back up. Well, in the process of all of that happening, you don't get enough blood supply to your brain. And you get really dizzy and a lot of people actually pass out. I don't, I usually um, get to the floor before that happens so that it kind of comes back up. But once I was diagnosed with that, then he gave me a medicine that stimulates your nervous system to kind of keep all of your vessels more toned. And that medicine really helps a lot so that I feel more like I can be up on my feet walking around my house without being dizzy all the time. And I found that the H1 um, antihistamines are very helpful to me to kind of keep me going. And I found an allergist locally because the, uh, the mast cell expert that I went to consult with, he's not local. So I needed to find somebody who could work with me locally. And I did. And so he kind of changed some medicines around and I've seen a lot of benefit out of uh, leukotriene inhibitor, which is monoleucast or singular. And so that's a general, that's pretty common for people in my situation too. So this cocktail of medicines that I'm taking right now has got me to the point where as long as I don't go anywhere or as long as I'm not on my feet too much, I feel pretty good. But, of course, that's not the exact end of the story because I also um, have that whole joint laxity issue. And so there's a third thing in this triad. Um, MCAS is one, POTS is another, and something called EDS hypermobility or Errol-Stanlow hypermobility type is the third. And I was just recently diagnosed with that. And so along with that diagnosis, came some really helpful information that probably what's happening with my muscle contractions is related to the fact that my collagen is not formed properly and it's not, I would say, strong enough or, um, you know, put together well enough that it doesn't, it doesn't actually hold my brain up where it's supposed to be. And so the weight of my spinal cord is actually pulling, or this is at least the hypothesis we're working on right now, is pulling my brain down and it's pinching the nerves so that that 
left side, I get these left side muscle contractions, which sort of alternate also with Bell's palsy. Something else. To- I feel like, yeah, I, know, I feel like each one of those things you could talk about for, you know, like an hour because they're all extremely complicated um, issues. And when they come together, it just makes, I mean, I belong to groups on Facebook and I know, so I know very well that I am not alone in this and that each one of those things and the combination are a lot more uh, prevalent than what any MD would want to give credit for. But So have you met anybody of- with all three? Yeah, I know quite a few people with all three. Okay. Um, I would say to anyone out there that is, you know, in this place where they don't, they don't quite know if you, if you start to suspect that there's something going on in your body, my, the very first thing that I would do is go on to social media, probably Facebook and find a group where people are talking because honestly, without my, my sort of key group is called masked movement. And without these people, I would not have anything going for me right now from my MCAS specialist to the allergist that I found locally, this rheumatologist, which eventually sent me to a physical therapist who is like, an amazing woman with her PhD who is extremely knowledgeable about hypermobility issues. I wouldn't have any of those people sort of on my team if it weren't for my Facebook group. So you have to find support somewhere. And often that is not going to come from local doctors because my, I love my general um, practitioner, but for six months, well, actually probably for two years when I would go to see her, she would hug me lovely, but she didn't have any ideas of how to help me. Now she's starting to come around. She's learning more about MCAS and POTS and EDS hypermobility she has been to some conferences and things are kind of looking up there. But for a while, I thought that I might have to find a different GP. And I tried to find different people locally. As soon as they would kind of hear the whole story, they would say that my case was too complicated. I tried to go to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and they said, no, we feel that you haven't um, seen enough you're not complicated physicians. enough. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Well, they they want, I think what they want is someone being referred to them because the local physicians can't figure it out. So they need this like really hard case that everybody's thought about but can't figure out. And the local doctors are like, oh my God, we don't have any time to deal with somebody like you. And so I was stuck in this really weird gray area where... Um, I basically had to be my own GP and to work with my Facebook group and, you know, just research and research and research to try to figure out what specialist I needed to consult with and knowing that sometimes those consultations are going to be worthwhile and sometimes they're not. And then I would write letters to my GP explaining my thinking of why I wanted a particular referral. And, um, have that, my husband faxes things for me. So have that fax to them and then wait and then follow up with a phone call and then wait. (laughs) And it's sort of, that's kind of how it goes. It took me six weeks to get a consult to a neurologist and another four weeks to actually get an appointment. And then, you know, you walk in and this is way too complicated for them. So they say things to you like, well, I'm pretty sure that this is psychosomatic, except you won't tell me what trauma you had. So I can't really write that down as a diagnosis. I think you should see this neurologist instead of me. So then you go to that neurologist and that neurologist says, well, you know, you have a lot of symptoms and your muscle contractions, um, which I've since found out is called dystonia. It's way too widespread for me to actually treat. So 
I don't really know what to do with you. And in the meantime, you know, my kids are the, you know, every day they change and get older and I just sort of been missing out on things. And so somewhere you have to find the strength to just kind of, I don't know, just live through each day, each moment without, um, and sort of dwelling on what you used to be able to do or thinking about what plans you had before for what you the future would look like. You have to just live in this little, like, this is right now. And so I'm doing the best that I can. And that's not always easy. <laughs> Most days it's not. Heather, you've been incredibly generous with your time and being open about the struggles that you've had, and I really appreciate it. And I want to give you the last word in case I forgot to ask a question or you have one more important point for people listening and struggling like you are. Well, I would say do not give up because there are people out there that have experienced the same crazy thing that you're experiencing. You just have to find them. And once you find those people, then you can start to network and find physicians who are willing to give you the time to try to help you with whatever is going on, whether that is, you know, the things that I have or not. And if you think that you might have some of the things going on that I have going on, I'm going to give McKay some resources that I can just sort of say where you should look right now. And that is, um, there's a, a website and blog called Mass Attack. And that woman has been through it all. And that is my go-to source for information. Whenever I'm wondering about anything um, related to MCAS, I sort of go there. And she has a Facebook group, but then there's another Facebook group that I highly recommend called Mass Movement. And just so you know, you have to answer the questions in order to be admitted into the group. Then I would check out the um, Dysautonomia Society because they have a really great explanation about POTS and some things that you can talk over with your doctor. And the Errol Stanlow Society, which also is just full of information. And both of those websites that I just mentioned have lists of doctors by state and country that you could contact to see if there's somebody in your area or where you might be able to travel to. But don't discount the power of those Facebook groups because those people have been there. They know what you're going through. And on the days when it just seems unbearable, you can write to them. And they're really there to help you through those rough times when other people might not understand. Heather, you have once again been brilliant. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you. Thanks, McKay. This was a really interesting interview. And it reminded me of this phrase I heard the other day. It was fighting the last war. And my question is, are doctors is the medical community today fighting the last war in terms of health or rather in terms of like i think that's a that's a problem that happens in institutions yeah and an institution being any sort of group so even a professional group like the international what is it disease idsa mm -hmm. right uh the infectious disease society of america there we go it's not international it's just the nature of institutions. It takes a while. It's like a, a big ship turning around. They can't, it's not a little speedboat and can just go zoop and turn around and change directions. It takes a long time for institutions to change. During the interview, I told the story about the ER doctor who taught about the old man who fell down the stairs. I mean, that's the classic thing that happens to you when you're practicing medicine. You see what's right in front of your face. And Lyme disease is such a big diagnosis, especially if you're a Lyme disease expert, that you see everything through those glasses. 
Oh, it's always useful to take the glasses off from time to time and ask, is there anything else going on? Because just because you have Lyme disease does not preclude these other problems. And sometimes I think Lyme disease can start these other problems from happening. Your point about, is it the last war? Maybe it's not the last war, but can we be blinded? Absolutely. The main battle we're fighting here at Lyme Ninja Radio is that doctors are blinded to Lyme disease. To Lyme disease. They don't even see Lyme disease. So that's that's the first blinding. But the blinding can happen on our side of the fence, so to speak, too, that all we can see is Lyme disease, like everything's Lyme disease. Yep. I mean, that we hear it. As everybody has. That's Some, our wrench. We're, we're going to use it. Exactly. The neighbor sneeze must be Lyme disease. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we kind of joke about that, but it's, it's tempting to see that. Now, once we get this testing up and running. I keep on saying, I've been saying that for years now, and still the tests aren't out there. It's like, come on, guys, get these tests out there. Once we get the better testing done, and actually, I should take that back, walk that back a little bit, because uh, Igenix does have a decent line panel now. They've really upped their game. They are much further ahead than where we were five years ago. So they've got a whole line panel now, and that's a decent test. So we have a decent test now. It's not a fabulous tests. Some of these tests in the pipeline are really going to blow the lid off infectious diseases, tick-borne diseases. But anyway, that's that's an interview. Hopefully, we'll be having some of those people on in the future, in the near future. Rambling. This is episode number 200. And the it's theme, the rambling. the rambling episode, we might just title this episode, rambling. yes, Rambling with Lime Ninja Radio. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, you've listened to us this far. Thank you so much. And if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please hit the subscribe button. That way you will not miss any of our rambling. And if you really like what we're doing, leave a review on your podcast app. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate if you'd support us by donating just $1 a month. Yes, for just $1, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. And just head on over to our new homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the patron link under the How Can We Help You headline. And a big shout-out to our most recent patrons, Caleb and Gemma. Thank you for making the world a better place for people with Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. Also, if you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything, send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Love us or hate us, just don't ignore us. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know? A ninja was supposed to play the lead role in Mission Impossible. However, she was replaced by Tom Cruise because otherwise the title would not have made any sense. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.